like slightly less awkward maybe yeah i mean we it it didn't require us like completely starting over so that's an improvement yeah. you know yeah. improvement and that, a little incremental improvement over and over time yeah equals we're, success we're getting there i might even remember our email address this time. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway you guys are listening to the weirdest thing podcast this is episode eight Fantastic. I can't believe it's episode, is this episode eight? eight. No, I actually think this is where we're recording episode nine. Actually. Oh, we've messed it up. Okay. It's either eight or nine. It's, so, much guys the not, <laughs> so much for the not awkward. Awkward? Okay. We've ruined the non awkward start. It's, yeah, it's all downhill. We're a mess. Um, but fun. yeah, so uh, I'm Scotty Milder, horror author, filmmaker here in Albuquerque. Hi, I'm Amelia Ampuero. I am an uh, actor and theater maker also here in Albuquerque. And this is our podcast about weird shit that we like to talk about. Fantastic. So I think you're starting this week. Oh, so yeah, 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 yeah. I am. So I'm going to talk today about the tragic affair between Frank Lloyd Wright and Mema Borthwick, which is a That's mouthful a of a name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so let's rock and roll. So Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, many of you will... I shouldn't say that. You might know him. Uh, He's an architect. He was born June 8th, 1867. But like I just said, he was an American architect, designer, writer, educator, raised in rural Wisconsin. And he later opened his own practice in Chicago in 1893 at 26 years old. I didn't realize Um, he was, for some reason, I was thinking he was later than that. But No, no. He lived to 90 something. Okay, maybe that's why I'm. Yeah, I mean, he was was around for for a bit. Wright was uh, an extremely influential architect. He Mm -hmm. was named the greatest American architect of all time by the American Institute of Architects in 1991. Just a quick side note to that, Wright called the American Institute of Architects a harbor of refuge for the incompetent. Um, (laughs) So he did not think much of them. Probably didn't show up to collect his award. (laughs) Well, he was already dead by that point. Okay. (laughs) So he definitely didn't. That would be your story, I guess. That would be the story is that he was, you know, like 130 some odd years old and he was like, give me this award. I'm out of here. Surprise. Um, But I, I, I did see something that since he, I don't think that he was part of the American Institute of Architects, mm-hmm. which meant that he was considered at least, I think, by them an amateur. Oh, well, that's probably that why he was all like salty about them. I also, he just, he'd like, he had, as we'll get into, he had very, very, very specific ideas of design. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not, uh, like, I'm not going to lie. Frank Lloyd Wright does kind of sound like a pain in the ass. Oh, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) I think most people who are trying to sort of break the confines of the traditional are frequently seen as as pains in the ass. Yeah, I mean, you're not, like, going to be, like, a go-along-to-get-along type of person. yeah. Yeah. yeah, precisely. So he pioneered the Prairie School movement of architecture, and that's a movement that's marked by horizontal lines, flat or hipped 
roofs with overhanging eaves, windows grouped in horizontal bands, integrations mm-hmm. with the landscape, solid construction, craftsmanship, and discipline in the use of ornament. If you uh, are familiar with Frank Lloyd Wright's designs, you will know that like they are definitely a reaction to, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but definitely a reaction to the architecture styles that were immediately previous, which is like mm-hmm. Victorian, very ornamental, very involved designs. And yeah. Frank Lloyd Wright was really looking for for cleanliness and a a, a relationship with with the structure's environment. Yeah, so his, I, mean, if, I was just gonna say I think that may be partly why I was thinking he came later because his stuff seems so different than like stuff you think of from the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, it is it like especially if you match it with what else was going on in architecture at the time, it is like worlds apart. Worlds apart, precisely. So this, he had this like affinity for these horizontal lines, which you'll see Mm -hmm. like everything is just straight lines all over the place, horizontal specifically. But he was using that to evoke the feel of the wide, flat, treeless expanses of America's native prairie landscape. Um, He was, yeah, like just in love with that, that part of like the landscape of that part of the country. Mm -hmm. Wright also believed that design should be harmonious with humanity and the environment. So like I was saying before, at the time, most American architecture was still trying to emulate the European style. And Wright felt desperately that the U.S. needed its own architectural style to reflect the country's landscape, people, democratic mm-hmm. ideals, unique character. Like he, he really wanted an American style of architecture as opposed to us trying to carry over the what was going on in Europe. I feel like I talk about that a lot and hear that there's like, <laughs> there's, I feel like a lot of my stories have been like either people trying to capture something that was going on in Europe or like, like uh, working to validate the U S in the eyes of Europe. Well, yeah. Cause it's almost like goes back to like your Astor place, right? Story. Right. It's like trying to forge this like unique American identity. Right. And this is, you know, at the end of the 19th century, like this is like America had been around for a hot sec. So it's, it's just interesting. So he, he also felt that structure and space could be used to convey cultural values of citizens harmoniously connected to each other and the land. His homes placed emphasis on the communal gathering spaces. So it was very much about like living room or like living areas, which I think at the time were called hearth rooms, mm-hmm. uh, dining areas that like, that was where the emphasis of, of his design intent was. Yeah. And then again, like just always trying to link the structure to a natural landscape. Uh, Wright was working with an eye towards like eco living and sustainability way before it was cool in popular culture. Yeah. Again, just a side note, there are obviously indigenous people <laughs> all over the world who have been doing this way before uh, Americans and Europeans, obviously, but Wright was really looking to to hone in on that and Mm -hmm. and make that part of his work. So his, a lot of his buildings, a lot of his designs worked with like, oh no, I'm not, I mean, they were energy efficient, but that's not exactly the word. They were, they were, they were looking to make use of light and air and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Not like artificial, like, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was like, let's throw in a bunch of radiators. Like he was working with radiant heat and stuff Mm -hmm. like very early on. When Wright started his career, Victorian and Edwardian architecture was in style, which was like I said, much more elaborate designs. And Mm -hmm. Wright felt that it was very brutal, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) which 
I mean, I can understand. I like Victorian architecture, like yeah. especially Victorian homes. I think they're gorgeous, but I can see. I mean, they can be pretty imposing. Like there's a reason why the sort of template for the haunted house in movies is always like some big crumbling Victorian mansion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They, it's very easy to imagine like a lot of repression mm-hmm. <laughs> happening in Victorian homes. Right. So Rye really felt that his style was like an antidote to the sort of confined and closed in architecture of the Victorian era. And he was a big believer in form following function, which again is like a departure from Victorian styles, Victorian and Edwardian styles, uh, which were much more about style. Wright's own style was exemplified by the use of coordinated design elements, often plant slash nature based, a liberal use of glass to blur the lines between the indoors and outdoors, Mm -hmm. and uh, to balance light and air with the solidness of the walls. He didn't want his buildings to be set apart from their environment. He wanted building and environment to be one. So that's a little bit of, just a little bit of backstory about Frank Lloyd Wright and his sort of design style. and, And, you know, you can already sort of see that like He's, he's he's looking to push against boundaries. Right. When you can see that in, like, what's his famous house? Is it the Falling Water one? Yeah, Falling Water. Where it's got the river that goes, mm-hmm. or the stream that goes underneath. Oh, my God, it. Yeah. that house. Yeah. That house I've always so cool. wanted to see it. I've never been there. Yeah. I mean, in like, in doing the research for this, you know, it was cool because I got to spend a lot of time. You know, anywhere that you go to look about it, anything about Frank Lloyd Wright is the, are also the the examples of his work and yeah i I mean people probably thought the world was ending (laughs) because it's so vastly it's unlike anything uh that was around at the time right so in june of 1889 wright marries Catherine kitty tobin and she was a social worker and socialite we're going to come back to all that so now i'm going to talk a little bit about mama bouton borthwick cheney (laughs) i love that name (laughs) That's just, I mean, it's a lot. So Mamo was born June 19th, 1869 in Boone, Iowa. She is a fascinating woman, or woman, sorry, singular. She got her bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Michigan. Okay. Uh, mind you, this is late 1800s. Right. In 1899, at the age of 30, she married Edwin Cheney, who was an electrical engineer from Oak Park, Illinois. First of all, she got married at 30. Again, mm-hmm. Late 1800s. Like an old spinster (laughs) at that point. Yes. And she had rejected Cheney's proposals for five years. (laughs) Like he was like, will you marry me? Nah. Will you marry me? Nah. Will you marry me? Nah. Five years later, she finally was like, fine. (laughs) Um, Mayma and Edwin had two children, John and Martha. At some point, Mayma meets Wright's wife, Kitty. Mm -hmm. at a social club that the two of them belong to. You know, they're both like society women in in the Chicago area. Right. And they met at a tea or something. I don't know. This is also really interesting because there's tons of, of course, tons of information about Frank Lloyd Wright and everything that he was doing and what the fuck he was up to and all this stuff. These two women who play a very large part in their story or in Mm -hmm. his story it's very difficult to find information about them. Hmm. Mayma and Kitty meet at the social club and somewhere throughout all of that, the Cheneys hire Wright to design a new home for them. And this home, which is the Edwin H. Cheney house, still stands today. I'm trying to think if it's going to like make it into the social media posts, mm-hmm. but if it doesn't, go and look it up because it's like Victorian home, Victorian home, and then this 
little Frank Lloyd Wright house. Like very much one of these things does not belong. Like the other. <laughs> yeah, one of these things is definitely not like the others. It's it it's just very very strange and very cool. Mm-hmm. So Mayma eventually meets Wright while he is working on the house, and Wright is instantly taken with Mayma. I'm going to also say that I first heard about this story in a book called Loving Frank. And I, of course, do not have the author's name, but we'll figure it out. But if you just, if you Google Loving Frank, you'll find. uh, You'll either find that or you'll find some real interesting, like, video links. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> perhaps maybe do loving frank book yeah uh, and see what that, comes up that might help. <laughs> uh yeah so that's where i heard about this first story and that's sort of a historical fiction or a like sort of fictionalized account of this entire affair but yeah frank is immediately taken with mayma and again nothing really i i, I was not able to find any information out about like how she felt about it i mean obviously mm-hmm. they ended up having an affair but i don't know if she was like torn about it or if she was like let's go like I right mean, off the bat it sort of sounds like she might not have been all that into her husband to start with if she rejected him for five years okay so we're gonna get to that okay right now <laughs> so mayma was an early feminist mm-hmm. and she had like interests outside of her home she was educated to be honest she was likely more interesting to frank than his wife kitty was mm-hmm. um Kitty was sort of the ideal picture of the true woman in society's eyes. We talked, I think, very briefly about the true woman, like true womanhood in the Gibson Girl segment mm-hmm. of the last episode. But it was this very, I mean, to me, as like a modern woman, uh, to me, it feels very rigid, but it was this like set of ideals that was had mm-hmm. about womanhood at, at the time. And uh, the main tenets of this of, of true womanhood were being dedicated was was a woman who was dedicated to piety purity right. submissiveness and dom, like domesticity yeah so everything is about getting a husband and starting a family motherhood is the highest honor that a woman can have let me pause here right now and say for anybody who's listening who might be a parent that's awesome and that's amazing and that is in no way anything that i'm about to say is in no way talking shit to somebody who is <laughs> quote unquote only a mother or only a parent however i'm talking here specifically about that being the height of importance in what a woman could accomplish at the right. time and i think that that's stifling yeah well it's like it's one thing if it's a choice you make for yourself it's another thing if it's like society is imposing this on you and you absolutely just have to go along to not yeah and that like you right that you can have no other dreams right beyond marriage and and motherhood yeah and it's it's like when you start going into the tenets of this whole true womanhood thing i mean Mm -hmm. because okay again like if the ultimate goal for you in your life is to get married and have children oh my god so amazing and and incredible for you but also mixed with the thing of piety and purity mm-hmm. and just all of it together is really about like you have a very the boundaries for what a woman could accomplish at this time were so narrow mm-hmm. um that i feel like i would have lost my marbles yeah i don't see you really working that well you that don't think no. <laughs> <laughs> just just hazarding a guess here but. you don't think I'd, i think i'd flourish um, so. <laughs> 
Frank had this to say about Kitty, quote, she served as a model for the ideal feminine beauty, a veritable Gibson girl in the flesh. Moreover, she was vivacious, bright, charmingly opinionated, refined, and rich. Catherine was a prize catch, end mm. quote. However, Frank saw Mayma as his intellectual equal. She worked, like, she didn't just have degrees in this stuff. She worked yeah. as a teacher and a librarian. She frequently left her children in the care of others, which was like, what? what? Yeah, at the time. I mean, I'm about to get to it, but there's, I mean, it seems like she was like, somebody take my kids, I'm out. Um, <laughs> And she was obviously more interested in intellectual pursuits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wright had this to say about Mayma, quote, her relative indifference toward her son and daughter, who even while nominally in her care, had been routinely foisted off on a series of nurses and boarding schools. Unlike Kitty, she had freed herself from her offspring to pursue the world of ideas, end quote. Mm-hmm. A couple of interesting thing in there, things in there, freed herself <laughs> from her offspring, <laughs> An interesting yeah, there's some subtext, some te- subtext. Yeah. Wright was also not super into parenthood. He mm-hmm. felt that the architect absorbed the father in him. Mm. Um, there is, I read a, like a thesis paper on the two of them for this. And again, I did not, I did not write it down, so I can't even quote my own <laughs> damn source. But it was a thesis paper about how the affair between the two of them and the way that it was really pushing, I mean, like pushing actively hard against the boundaries of the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Mayma is obviously like totally rocking these new feminist ideals by being like, yeah. I'm going to go work. Somebody take my kids. I'm out. But right also with this thing of like, I mean, I'm, I'm having kids, but like, and Frank had a lot of kids. I mean, he yeah. has like six biological children and then he ended up like adopting two more later on from other oh, marriages. Wow. Probably because he really liked how, how kids are made, but not so much about like dealing <laughs> was, with, with the aftermath. I, I, I didn't want to say it, but that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> so both of these people, both Frank and Mayma, are really unhappy with the expectations that society is, is putting on them. Right. At some point in all of this, Mayma and Wright begin an affair. And uh, and it's I I believe it's while he is working on the Cheney home that they begin this affair. They start spending a decent amount of time together in public, which is like huge no no. Yeah. Also pushing against some big conventions. I mean, even like today's conventions. I would say. Yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> which is very like, listen, you can fuck around on your spouse, but you better do that in private behind closed doors. Nobody wants to see it, <laughs> you know, again. So yeah. So obviously all of this gets society talking. Everybody's up in arms. Everybody's mm. like chattering away about all of this. In 1909, they both come out to their spouses. Edwin, Mayma's husband, is like, I, I was about to be like, he was like, okay, fine. I don't actually know if he was that, that like chill about it or whatever, but yeah. he did grant her a divorce okay. and was like, you know, you can have custody of the children whenever you want. On Mayma's end, it went pretty smoothly. Kitty, however, <laughs> was not going to go down without a fight. So she not was- having it. She was not having it. She refused to divorce Frank. She really, it seems like she really believed that Frank's interest in Mayma was little more than carnal Mm -hmm. and that he would return to Kitty once he sort of got Mayma out of his system. This is a direct quote from Kitty. Quote, you don't understand the man. He will control his infatuation for her and come home. I heard from him on Friday and he desires to be home. End quote. 
Mm. Yeah, that seems like some pretty deep denial. Yeah. Yeah, and there were a fair amount of quotes from her, like quotes from like newspaper articles, letters she wrote, all of the stuff that it was really like, he is not leaving me. He Mm -hmm. will not be leaving me. He will be coming home. I'm not even worried about Mm -hmm. this. And also a lot of stuff about her basically because, you know, Kitty was so this veritable Gibson girl in the flesh. She was this perfect example of, of true womanhood. There was a lot of her basically like talking about essentially like keeping the home fires Mm -hmm. stoked for him. Like, and I've got to imagine, you know, she's not like, what is her name? Mayma. Who's like really this independent, like going and doing her own thing person. Right. Like Kitty is trying to be the ideal wife, mother, you know right so when frank's like see ya you know she doesn't have anything else right and the, this is her entire identity precisely and yeah. like frank stepping out on her and having this very public affair speaks poorly to society of kitty right because it 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 insinuates that she is unable to keep her husband happy yeah, there's something deficient on her end. Yes, which of course yeah. is not true at no, all. No, it's bullshit. No, 100%. But that is, everybody's like, oh, well, she couldn't keep her husband. Yeah. And to go along with what you were saying, what is she going to do? Yeah. If her husband leaves her, then she's like, she's a spoiled, soiled woman. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't have purity on her side anymore. She's messed up domesticity. So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's nothing left for her. Yeah, it's not like she can be like, all right, well, I'll go get a job at McDonald's and I'll hustle and this is going to be hard, but I'm going to be right. fine. Or I'm like, going to go back to school and like get that degree yeah. I've always wanted. Or, oh, you know. <laughs> no, uh, she's just fucked. So that sucks for Kitty. So I understand mm-hmm. why she was like, nope, this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago Papers and, I mean, honestly, everybody else at the time openly criticized the affair between Frank and Mayma. And they went so far, the papers went so far as to suggest that Frank should be arrested for immoral, like immorality. <laughs> um, they called for this so much that the local sheriff had to come out and basically be like, yo, unless they are effing in public, like we, I don't like, yeah. there's not like, we can't do anything. Consenting adults. Right. That yeah. obviously is not a direct quote from the local sheriff at the time, but right. that like <laughs> he yeah. did come out and be like, guys, I can't do anything for you. Right. Like I don't. I, and yeah, like, we have no, they're not doing anything in public. They're just together in public. So mm-hmm. I can't, I like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you guys. So later that year in 1909, Wright and Mayma decide to be like, okay, let's, let's, let's go to Europe and kind of hang out in Europe until the, the scandal kind of. It almost reminds down. me of the Piercy Shelley, Mary Shelley story. Oh yeah. You know, like, because I think there was a similar thing there. I don't know so much about Piercy's wife at the time, but when he started his affair with Mary, I think there was an element of like, she's my intellectual equal and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then big scandal. and like, let's fuck off to Europe. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe people won't care so much. Right. All of this too. Like the thing, a thing I kept thinking about while I was writing this, because again, Frank has the whole thing about Catherine Kitty being this prize catch, uh, but you know, that Mayma had like, thrown off the shackles of society's expectations and she was had fled to the world of ideas and all Mm -hmm. that stuff and it just there is this idea right this expectation by society that is like this is what a woman needs to be and yet over and over and over again men are like yeah that's what i want i don't really want that i really want a woman who's going to be my intellectual equal i really want somebody who's going to be challenged but i'm going to marry this one 
I'm going to marry the perfect catch and then have an affair with the person who's intellectually stimulating. Yeah. Well, um, and I think, I think there's, a, there's an element of like, Ooh, I want this woman who challenges me and blah, blah, blah. It's a, but please don't actually challenge me. 100 you know? <laughs> percent yeah like, yeah like it in theory until it's like in your face and then it's like, right well, well i want you to do it but i want you i want you to do it but don't do it to me yeah do it around me but not <laughs> at me <laughs> <laughs> and i mean i think i think i think there's pro- i think we all have an example of something that we're like do it around me but not at me yeah yeah so it's just it's it's you know, I mean, because again, Charles Gibson was, you know, going back to last episode, Charles Gibson was ra- like, you know, crazy about this ideal of this like sweet domesticated woman who was so docile and like, you know, all of these things and then had married this badass feminist. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, I just think it's an interesting yeah, like, dichotomy. Like something that hasn't gone away. Like, uh, no. We see this. I mean, we see this in our friends and stuff not see this in my love life yeah i was was gonna let you i was gonna let you say that thank you (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate that i appreciate the call in to call myself out (laughs) but not the but not the calling out of me so thank you for that okay so yeah so they run off to europe and they're sort of like maybe maybe we can do that and kind of like uh, you know, wait out the scandal. Mm-hmm. In doing that, Mayma essentially abandons her children because they're in Europe for two years and she's like, <laughs> peace. And so that- be like, fine. Yeah. Right. And before that, it kind of seemed like every like everything about the affair was a little bit like, ooh, right, like naughty, naughty, you shouldn't be doing that. I think sort of lacing the blame a little bit more on Frank Lloyd Wright Mm-hmm. And probably sort of like, oh my God, you know, like she's been swept up in this and he's a genius. And so of course she did. Like, it just seemed like there was a little bit more of the onus of the affair was on Frank. But mm-hmm. when Mayma abandoned her children to go to Europe, everybody was like, this bitch. <laughs> yeah. So Shit list. Yeah. Yeah. May, like just a national, on the national shit list. Yeah. So while they're in Europe, Frank spends some time in Tuscany. And while he's there, he begins to envision this home for him and Mayma to, to live in upon their return to the United States. He sends off the blueprints to these contractors in Spring Green, Wisconsin, which is by all accounts, like a beautiful little village mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. Let me um, sound like just Spring Green, Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. sounds lovely. Imagine um, like deer prancing through fields. And, yeah. <laughs> and just little streams everywhere. Yeah. Like there's no massive river. It's just little streams and, yeah. and creeks. Watch, it's nothing like that at all. Yeah. It's if you're from just there, a bunch of been factories there. or something. Yeah. <laughs> just an industrial. <laughs> the streams are all full of waste. Um, there's a like dead Maybe a hundred years ago it was like that. <laughs> There we go. Off we go. This the tangents on this episode are are uh, yeah, top well, notch. We're, we're looking at another two hour one, I think. Oh gosh, sorry. <laughs> you're you're welcome. I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this. Okay, so the plans that he that he sends off are the plans for the home, uh, the estate, honestly, that would eventually become known as Taleasin, which means shining mm-hmm. brow in Welsh. Mm-hmm. So Wright saw Taleasin as the symbol for his and Mayma's love and felt that the two, it, he really felt like this would be a sanctuary. This would be a place for the two of them mm-hmm. to be happy, in love, at peace. So Mayma, while Frank was in Tuscany, I was about to be like doodling away. That is not at all the truth. Architecture is a very <laughs> impressive career. It, it's a skill set that I do not have. So no, no disrespect to architects. But as- <laughs> Architecture, blah, blah, blah. 
architecture, blah, blah, blah. So while Frank is like, you know, designing this house, Mayma is spending her time in Europe translating the works of proto-feminist Ellen Key, this mm. bish. Okay, so Ellen Key <laughs> was a free love advocate. The sort of best way to describe free love is basically take anything having to do with love, sex, sexuality, relationships, marriage, familyhood, all of that stuff, and just take away any of the sort of old school oppressive forms of thinking on it. So mm-hmm. it was very, like, it was people, I think, hear free love and think it means, like, going around and fucking everybody, but that's the, I mean, well, I think that was, like, maybe a part of it. Yeah. It was, you know, it was kind of, like, wanting to move away from this thing of, like, you know, virginity and purity as as, mm-hmm. as an ideal, and it was, uh, you know, not being bound by the confines of monogamy, yeah, allowing yeah. women to have different aspirations than wifehood and motherhood, that kind of stuff. Again, like, pushing back on this, like, Gibson girl ideal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And of course everybody was like if you were if you if you agreed with the ideals of free love, the better part of society was like you're a freak because it was just terrifying for them. Mm-hmm. So, Key was a free love advocate who argued that quote the treatment of the movements which have the deepest influence on sexual morality are the evolution of love, its freedom and its selection, the claims of the right to and exemptions from motherhood, of collective motherhood, of free divorce, and of new marriage law. So again, divorce Mm -hmm. and trying to sort of redefine what marriage meant. So of course, that probably has to do with like the sharing of assets and and things like that. Property rights. Property rights. Yeah, all of that stuff. I... In directing a play that was set in this time period, although granted that was in England and not in the U.S., I did a little bit of research into what divorce was like at the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And ooh, man, you were like you were real fucked if yeah. if if you wanted to get divorced back then. It was really based on having to prove without a doubt that your husband was beating you had gone insane or was, I think some people were like, well, eh, I mean, like if you can prove that he's beating the kids, mm-hmm. like we'll take so like, that. But like, eh. it's gotta be like the literal wolf man, basically. Right. And by proof, I mean, he had to like, he had to beat you like in the courthouse. Yeah. Like in front of the judge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm not laughing at intimate partner violence. <laughs> I'm laughing at the fucking ridiculousness of what we've had to go through. Okay. So that's what Key was all about. She also wrote about, like, she wrote about women's rights. She wrote about syphilis. That came up a lot, but it was like, (laughs) she wrote about syphilis. And I was like, well, I'm glad somebody was fucking writing about syphilis. Because apparently it was everywhere, uh, if we learned anything from the Night of Terror last show, last episode. But like, yeah, I mean, apparently syphilis was everywhere. Like, sexually transmitted infections were everywhere. So I'm glad somebody was writing about it. I mean, if I ever do my HP Lovecraft episode, there's a whole bunch of syphilis in that story. What the hell was it with syphilis? <laughs> I think it was just like running rampant and people didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. Well, because people were like, you know, are your humors off? And that's how you get diseases. Yeah, here, so. let me put this leech on you and yeah, change the bad vapors or whatever. Yes. However, there is validity to bloodletting. Okay. 
I'll oh, get to a, that. That's like a whole other episode. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> um, okay, so women's rights, syphilis, sexual repression, and socialism. Okay, this book has to be the most like socialist title that I have ever read in my entire <laughs> life. After publishing some thoughts on how reactions begin, she was marked as a social radical and she was like, maybe I am and maybe I am. Like she never mm-hmm. denied it. Yeah. She was just like, mm-hmm. you tell me. Come at me, you motherfuckers. Yeah, and they were like, well, then you're a radical. And she was like, then I guess I'm a radical. Cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he strongly advocated that all her disciples follow their beliefs and their relationships, even in the face of public censure. So it's really easy to see why Maymal was like such a big fan of her. Mm-hmm. Hers. There's also a really funny story that says that like a- even after Maymal returned to the U.S., that she would like continue to write Key and would be like, you know, I- I'd like to come and visit you. <laughs> and Key being like having no fucks to give would be like, yeah, come and visit me. That sounds nice. And then a week later would be like, I've decided I don't want you to come. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Which like, I'm sure back then was like, like a a take your breath away for like kind of reaction to (laughs) it. Because even now I like, you know me, I don't, I don't have a ton of fucks to give. No, but you have a few more fucks than that. I don't think I would ever tell somebody, I think I'd find a better excuse than I've decided. I don't want you to come anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it would depend on the person. I can think of several people, I think. That I would, I would actually be like, I've decided I don't want you to come anymore. Yeah. Please don't contact me. Yeah. Lose my email. <laughs> okay. So quick little interjection, quick factoid here. Wright, Mema, and Key were all eugenicists, mm-hmm. as was honestly a good portion of the population at this yeah. time. I mean, that sure seems to keep coming up in these stories we tell from this time period. Yeah. Like everybody is like eugenics. Uh, So Mm -hmm. just in case you're unfamiliar with what that term means, it's a set of beliefs and practices that aim to improve the genetic quality of a human population by excluding people and groups judged to be inferior or promoting those judged to be superior. Mm -hmm. So it's hella racist. Yeah. And like it's, it, you know, again, going back to the scientific racism thing was a widely held belief. Like people Mm -hmm. were like, no, we need to, like, if we want (laughs) to... Because I can't even, I I don't know if I'm going to speak out of turn here. And if I am, please correct me. But I don't even know how much of this had to do with people being out and out like racist with a capital R, but mm. rather than just being like, no, I mean, we want like the cream rises to the top kind of mm-hmm. bullshit, which is well, obviously yeah, racist and rooted in white supremacism. But it's, it's I all- don't know if these people would have classified themselves as such. Yeah, probably not. But like, it's all tied together because it's all about like, you know, the Nazis were known obviously for the extermination of Jews and Roman Mm -hmm. people and whatnot, but also like exterminating people with disabilities because it Mm -hmm. all boils down to that. We are trying to promote this idea of, of this superior ideal, which obviously is going to look like me. It's not (laughs) like you. So if you've got a club foot or if you've got dark skin, it's all the same. Don't look like right. Right. Or if you're, you know, if you're queer or if you're well, like whatever. Right. Or if you're a twin or like whatever. They were yeah. fucking Nazis. Fucking Nazis. You know what? Honestly, hot take, fuck Nazis. Yeah. Um. Yes. <laughs> bold, bold statements here on this thing. Taking the contrarian position. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's said this before, but I'll, I'm, I don't mind being the first. 
fuck Nazis. Um, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm so really pr- I'm really proud of you for taking that stand. <laughs> I've decided to stand up and be brave. Oh my God. Okay. Enough. Okay. So anyways, they're all eugenicists because everybody's a fucking eugenicist at this point. And they, this is the funny thing that they're eugenicists who believe in free love and the abandonment of monogamy must be done to further, this is a quote from Key, must be done to quote, further the development of the whole race, not the passions of the individual. Mm, That sounds like some pretzel logic to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, you just say that you want to go out and fuck everybody. Yeah. Like, that's what we all want to do. Yeah, don't make it a thing. Yeah. Just There's no higher, like, there's yeah. no elevated just, reasoning to this. You're just horny. Everybody you got to get your freak on, so. Yeah, everybody. Go do it. <laughs> <laughs> so just go and do it and, like, don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, in 1911, two years after they've escaped to Europe, right in Maymaw, come back to the U.S. and they move mm-hmm. into Taliesin. The home was, like I said, supposed to be this sort of refuge for them, but almost immediately the editor of the local newspaper condemned Wright for sullying the little village's good name by bringing scandal to it. Mm. The press referred to Wright and Mema as quote-unquote soulmates. Here's the thing. I'm saying that. I think the paper did it in quotes. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think they were like, oh, they're soulmates. Like... <laughs> They referred to their trip to Europe as a spiritual hegira, again, Mm -hmm. quotes, and uh, called Taliesin a love bungalow. Again, I don't think any of these things were like just straight reporting. I think it was highly editorialized. Uh, And they were, yeah, they were not, I don't think they were being flattering in any of those uh, things. The two were so hounded by the press and the townsfolks that Wright had to eventually come out and be like, yo, like if you keep messing with us, you're going to be met with force next time. Again, Mm -hmm. not a direct quote, but that was the general sentiment of it. So Wright kept working at Taliesin, but the whole scandal dried up his commissions. Mm -hmm. So again, they moved back in 1911. He would not have another commission until the Imperial Hotel in 1916. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So big career drought. Yeah. 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 And he was still, I mean, there was still work that was being done, but like th- that, you know, he, I think he was doing homes and things, but like that kind of big commission, mm-hmm. not again until 1916. Okay. So a little bit about Taliesin, it included living quarters, Wright's studio, his workroom and a small apartment where it was supposed to be an apartment for Wright's mother, but it ended up being his head draftsman ended up living there. Okay. The building was expansive and even had an agricultural section where i don't know why i think this is just cute where Wright grew apples berries pears asparagus rhubarb and plums hmm. he nothing bought... that i want to eat but <sighs> not even the asparagus oh no i'll eat the asparagus you'll eat asparagus yeah don't you fucking tell me that you don't like asparagus <laughs> yeah and it was something like i think he had it was something because he had a whole apple orchard It was Mm -hmm. like he ordered like 150 trees of one variety, 50 trees of another, 50 trees of another, 50 trees. Like he had a, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it says like little agricultural. It's not little. He was, yeah, he was, I was about to say, he was making some food. (laughs) (laughs) I am a farmer. Um, Okay. So the Wrights employed Julian Carlton. He was a 31 year old man from Barbados and he worked at Taliesin as a chef and a servant. Carlton was recommended to the Wrights for, to, I'm sorry, he was recommended to Frank for employment by a close friend of Frank's. Okay. We're going to start getting into some sort of, into some bad things here. So just a a little bit of a content warning moving forward. During his employment, Carlton became increasingly paranoid and he would there are stories of him staying up late with 
like sitting, staring out of a window, holding a butcher knife. Mm. Yeah. Red, red flag. Huge red flag. Can you imagine yeah. like walking through a home and like, or like, you know, you're out for a little midnight constitutional or whatever, and you just see somebody like just sitting, staring off into the middle distance, mm-hmm. the butcher knife. Yeah, I wouldn't stick around. Yeah, I wouldn't stick around either. So Frank and Mama had like noticed that and they were like, Ugh, yeah, that, 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 that doesn't seem great. So they put out an ad in the newspaper for a new chef. And Carlton was eventually told that August 15th, 1914 would be his last day of employment. Mm. So at noon on August 15th, Wright was in Chicago on business. And at, at, at noon on that day, everybody at Taleasin sat down for lunch. Mama and her children, John, who at this point is 11, and Martha, who is eight at this point on one side of the estate, and the studio personnel all the way on the other. Carlton grabbed a shingling hatchet and went after Mama and the children first. Mama was killed with a single blow to the face. Her two children were murdered directly after. Carlton poured gasoline on the bodies, lit them on fire, and that fire set the house on fire. Mm. On the other side of the estate, six workmen, five men, and one 13-year-old boy are sitting down to lunch. Carlton is going for them next. Mm. Carlton douses a rug with gasoline, shoves it against the door and lights it on fire, essentially trapping the workmen in the lu- oh, in like the shit. lunchroom. Mm-hmm. Since the doorway's on fire, the workers try to escape through the windows, but Carlton was waiting for them. Mm. So draftsman Herbert Fritz escapes through the window. He broke his arm in, in the doing of that. Draftsman Emile Brodel, who was thought to be Carlton's main target, is killed immediately. Mm. As William Weston and his 13-year-old son, Ernest, try to flee, Carlton attacks them. William survives, but Ernest dies from his wounds hours later. And is this all still with the shingling hatchet? Mm-hmm. Carlton then goes to search for the remaining two people in the house. That is laborer Thomas Brunker and gardener David Lindblom. Lind, I'm sorry, Lindblom. Brunker and Lindblom manage to fight Carlton off and escape, but they succumb to their wounds days later. Directly after Lindblom is able to escape, Lindblom and Weston are able to alert a neighbor of the attack. With the house empty, Carlton goes to the basement and into the fireproof furnace chamber to wait out the fire. Uh, It begins to get a little too hot in there, so he pulls out a vial of hydrochloric acid and he drinks that. Thinking that it would kill him, it did not. Yeah. yeah, so I'm not after sure which is worse. Yeah, I'm not sure either. After alerting neighbors, Weston returns to Tulaysen to put out some of the fires with a garden hose. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and actually succeeds. Like oh, wow. he well, he's he's time. able to. Uh, I mean, yeah, he he it works. So the fire demolishes like the residence portion, mm-hmm. but the studio portion, which held writes manuscripts and all of the stuff that he was working on, that was saved. Something at least. Something, yeah. Police find Carlton in the basement with his wife, Gertrude, who believed... Okay, sorry, I messed that up. Okay, police find Carlton in the basement. Mm -hmm. His wife, Gertrude, they find in a field, in a nearby field. She was under the impression that she was waiting for her husband to finish... Her husband to finish his last day at work and that they were then going to catch a train to Chicago to go find new jobs. Mm. They find so her in her just, traveling clothes. So she's just like hanging out out there thinking like, yeah, well, like he'll be my, along like, shortly, kind of. Yeah. yeah. She is completely unaware of 
his plan. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, granted, this is a good bit of, of uh, conjecture because I'm certain that nobody spent a lot of time talking to Carlton after this happened, but it would seem that this is not like he was like going along with work and then just had some type of a, of a, of a break. <laughs> it seems that this was planned out. Yeah. Yeah. So Gertrude has, is, is completely unaware of all of this. Mm-hmm. She is thankfully quickly released from police custody. She's put on a train to Chicago with $7 and she is never heard or seen from again. Oh, wow. Like, we have no idea what happened to Gertrude after that. Carlton is nearly lynched mm. uh, by the town in this, but the police managed to get him into custody. The acid he'd ingested didn't kill him, but it did severely burn his esophagus, making it hard to ingest food. Mm. He was indicted and charged with the murder of Emile Brodel, the only murder that was witnessed by a survivor. That's why he was only charged with one murder. Okay. Yeah. Every, everybody knows that he killed the others, but... The witnesses to those murders died. Yeah. Yeah. So Carlton dies of starvation in his cell 47 days after the the tragedy at Taliesin. Okay. In almost everything that you find about this story and and the murders at Taliesin, it's very much like... Carlton was mad because like he was, he was mentally unwell and he was mad because he'd been fired. Mm Mm-hmm. There are sources, though, that say that Carlton, being from Barbados, was subjected to a lot of like nasty racism in his mm-hmm. job at Taliesin. That is specifically why he went after Brodel first, because that was he got the brunt of it from Brodel. Okay. But there, like, there is there is that version of the story out there that it was like this is not somebody who was just like oh I've been fine because everything about him too is like originally when he got the job he was wonderful he was he was very nice and so he was great at his job and all that stuff and then there's a turn. Yeah, well, I think it's plausible that there was some undiagnosed mental illness at I, work. Absolutely, that was then exacerbated by his treatment. You know, like yeah. that. Like, they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, it's just an interesting thing to bring up because it's sort of like, oh, he was mad about his job. Well, was he mad about his job or was he being, like, was he being treated terribly, you know? I mean, what Um, exactly was he mad at with the job? Was it being fired or was it everything that led up to him being fired? Right. Precisely. Thank you. Yes, that's a much better way. It's much more succinct than I was trying to (laughs) Good grief. Okay. So, like I said, Frank is in Chicago at this point mm-hmm. when all of this happens. He gets word that Taliesin is on fire, and he's like, oh, shit, drops everything, catches the first train to Wisconsin that he can. Again, this is a train, so mm-hmm. it's not like a flight or whatever. Right. He's on a train, I think, for, I think for a few days. Mm. Like I said, they don't, they don't tell him anything other than that Taliesin is on fire. Yeah. On the trip back via newspaper articles, Frank begins to learn the details of what happened oh. at Taliesin, including that Mema had perished in the attacks. Oh. He didn't know that. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder why they didn't tell him. Well, they maybe didn't know before he was on his way. Yeah. There's, I'm, I'm, I don't want to get too into it because it does involve children and stuff, but the details of it there is no there's no like oh like she died Mm -hmm. and and yeah i i it's unclear as to why they were not like hey talaisin is is on fire and And she is 
yeah. soon the kids are dead. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why, but they didn't. Uh, so he was like, cool. I'm on my way back home. You know, this'll, what a pickle. And then actually like, no, this is major, major tragedy. So in the aftermath of this event, Edwin Cheney arrives to take the bodies of his children back to Chicago. Mm. Wright buries Mama, And when I say he buries her, I mean, he buried her. Like, like he did it. Like he dug the grave and like everything. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm nodding. Like, like <laughs> viewers at home can see me doing this. Yes. Yeah. He, he dug the hole. He did everything. Wright marries. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> okay. Sorry. Let's try that. Take two. Wright buries Mayma in an unmarked grave on the grounds of Unity Chapel in Spring Green. He stated, I want I wanted to fill the grave myself. No monument yet marks the spot where she is buried. All I had left to show for the struggle for freedom of the last five years past that had swept most of my former life away. Why mark the spot where desolation ended and began? Yeah. That one's tough. After Mema's death, Wright suffered from depression, insomnia, weight loss. He even temporarily went blind. He was so distraught. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. He eventually was able to recover with the help and support of his sister, Jane. Though Wright lived for another 45 years and he continued to work in that time, he had two other marriages and he even rebuilt Taliesin. The tragedy had such a profound effect on his life and design style that biographer Robert Twombly wrote that Wright's prairie school period ended with the loss of Maymont. Mm. And it's true. Like if you look at his designs, everything after this period, it's not like a massive shift. It's not like he goes in a completely different direction, but there's a shift mm-hmm. and, and it definitely starts to move away from the work that he was doing prior to that. And just, that is the, yeah. Oh, just curious. I don't know yeah. if you ran across this, but you know that George Hodel mansion in LA that we drove by. Mm-hmm. Do you know when was that later period? That's actually right? his son. So oh, that's okay. Lloyd Wright Jr. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. wasn't and there, the Frank Lloyd Wright house. No. I mean, it's, it. you know, I mean, it's his son. So it's like, you know, nothing to scoff that, Scotty. But um, <laughs> but yeah, and it was, it, and that's like, you know, you can see that there's, there, it's, there's, it's definitely like the right family. You know what I mean? Like the right mm-hmm. DNA. Um, but but if, again, if you sort of compare that to his other stuff, Although it is a little bit more in line with what he, what Frank Lloyd Wright began to do out West. Yeah, but it is, it's technically, uh, it's his son's work, not his work. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Very cool. Um, And I think there's even, so like it was Frank Lloyd Wright, then Lloyd Wright Jr. I think was his name. And then I think Lloyd's son also went on to become an architect. Mm -hmm. That's too much pressure for me. Yeah. Like my grandpa was Frank Lloyd Wright. Like, no. Yeah, I always wonder about, like, like, I always think about, like, people like Colin Hanks out there, like, doing his thing. Yeah. That's like, I mean, he can be the greatest actor in the world. He's still always going to be Tom Hanks' son. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Colin. Colin Hanks, if if you're listening to this. (laughs) Yeah, I like Colin He's like, I am. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that is the uh, sad and cautionary tale of the affair between Frank Lloyd Wright and Mema Borthwick. Wow. Yeah. I knew a li- I like I knew that some shit had gone down at Taliesin, mm-hmm. but I didn't know the extent of it. And I didn't know it was that brutal. 
Like, yeah. That's yeah. And I mean, I'm not including because even in the writing of it, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, they'd like they're having this affair. And here's what Frank Lloyd Wright is about. And they go off to Europe and free love and then murder. Yeah. Um, so I was like, let me not include a whole bunch of the details. Yeah. Uh, Scotty, I know you're a weirdo like I am. So I'll tell you the details later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just for our, our listeners sake, and especially, uh, especially because it involves children and mm-hmm. uh, we don't need yeah. to go into that. Also, you have Google. Yeah. You know. Like Although can, I will you say, can look this shit up. <laughs> in reference to my story coming up here, like I did a lot of googling, and uh, be careful with the Google because you might stumble on some photos you wish you could scrub out of your brain. Okay, yeah. let's do a little poll here, little weirdest thing poll. I love crime scene photos, <laughs> but it has to be like of before a certain time period. You know what I mean? Like I don't want to see anything. I don't want to look at the Nicole Brown Simpson Mm-mm. photos. Um, I've seen those because I saw that documentary. They're fucking awful. Yeah. Like I don't want to see there, – there, there's, there's a – I think mm, – kind of in my lifetime I, i'm like that's the stuff that mm-hmm. i'm like ah, I t- like I, you know but there's a sense of removal in like like the black dahlia mm-hmm. like i have looked at those photos the jack the ripper victims the photos that exist of mm-hmm. those victims 100 percent looked at those i'm yeah. fascinated by them yeah how do you feel about crime scene photos i'm kind of like you like if they're black and white photos i think it gives mm-hmm. a little bit of that remove Mm -hmm. um when they're color it's a lot harder and particularly when it is like more recent stuff like the nicole Prince simpson oh yeah that said like i can't help myself from looking at them like i generally regret it later oh Um, and like but it'll even be the thing where i'll hear a story and then i'll go search them out knowing that i'm gonna (laughs) gonna see these god-awful photos yeah or like even video like there's the the bud dwyer um (sighs) suicide video we need to talk about this yeah for a moment because both of my older brothers are also weirdos uh as a matter of fact me and scotty Mm. have a text thread with my older brothers and it is mostly (laughs) just us sharing uh weird stuff and we had a private facebook group for a while that was all about like the spooky weird stuff that we could find and I think it was, I think it was my middle brother had posted the video of Bud Dwyer. Is that his name? Bud Dwyer, yeah. On there. Okay. If you were going to go and research this and look it up because you also are a weirdo, you need to know that the video is extraordinarily graphic. I mean, extraordinarily graphic. And I didn't know this and it caught me by surprise. And every now and then as I'm falling asleep, I have an image of that video that pops into my brain and then I have to go walk around for a little bit because I'm so traumatized by it. So just be careful. That. That, that's be one careful. to be careful of. Like, yes. Um, and, and, and just, this is like a sidebar cause it's not actually my story, but just if you guys don't know Bud Dwyer, he was a politician. I want to say in Ohio, but I could be wrong about that. It feels very like middle America. Yeah. It could have been Ohio. could have been Illinois somewhere. Yeah. But he was uh, essentially convicted of some corruption I don't remember the details. And he gave a press conference where he shot himself in front of the news cameras. And like, yeah. you can not recommending this, but you can find the video yeah. <laughs> on the interwebs. And like Amelia said, it is, it is one that'll stick with you. It's, it's yeah. rough. Yeah. But yeah, so I am definitely like, I will seek that stuff out and I will always regret it. Yep. 
particularly if it is like more recent stuff and i think and if for it me deals and if it deals with children like that i don't want to know that's that's that children and animals i don't want to see that i mean there's a lot of stuff it's there's a you know and it's so hard because everything is is filmed now mm-hmm. and there's video of everything that's images i can look at, at static pictures videos are are the rough yeah i i I tend to stay away from them just for my own mental well-being. Yeah, I think that's um, that's smart. I wish I could. I wish I say could the do same. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have the willpower apparently. So. Yeah, and and neither does my oldest brother. Also, does not. And then he'll be like, "Oh my god!" and you know, <laughs> wants to tell us about it. And we're like, "Stop with that! Stop! Can't. Stop! Stop! Stop, stop! Stop! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's too much. It's too much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> What are you talking? What are you telling me about? All right. Well, so we had sort of talked about this as being like an architectural themed episode, mm-hmm. but mine only sort of glances at architecture. I don't actually have a lot to say about the architecture, but it is a very famous house. So yeah. I'm going but you to know tell, what? We make the rules. And so. Yeah, and we can change them whenever we fucking want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I am here to tell you the true story of the Amityville Horror. Ooh, fantastic. Now, I'm not going to go too much into like the the haunting itself because I think everyone kind of knows that story. And mm-hmm. that would really like end up being me sort of just debunking a lot of shit. And like, mm-hmm. I feel like we do, I feel like this podcast is turning into us debunking conspiracy theories and stuff. <laughs> and like, sometimes you just want to leave them alone. Sometimes it's more fun to think it might be real. So I'm not going to not gonna okay, comment but, too much. <laughs> in our defense, the conspiracy theories that we've covered have been extremely debunkable. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that is true. If you well, bring us, like if I, you know, I feel, I feel like there's plenty of other conspiracies that we could get into, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and a lot, like give ourselves over the, to the, we can suspend our disbelief to just tell a good story. We, we should, we should do an episode that's just dedicated to conspiracy theories. We actually believe at some point. Ooh, okay. <laughs> that would be a fun one. All right. But anyway, like, well, and just to tip my hand a little bit, the Amityville Horror House and the story of the haunting behind it, I think at best is very questionable. Mm. What is not questionable is that there was a tragic murder that happened in this house Okay, that kind of set everything off. So just a little bit of background. So the house itself is a 1927 Dutch colonial revival style house uh, in the village of Amityville, which is on Long Island. It's on like the South shore of Long Island. And just real quick, just so you know a little bit about what Dutch colonial revival architecture is. It's a, this is from Wikipedia. It says, the modern use of the term is to indicate a broad gambrel roof with flaring eaves that extend over the long, side, over the long sides, resembling a barn in construction. The early houses built by settlers were often a single room with additions added to either end and very often a porch along both sides. Typically, walls were made of stone and chimney was located on one or both ends. Common were double hung sash windows with outward swinging wood shutters and a central double Dutch door. So it's like a very specific architectural style. And like anyone, I'm sure everyone knows the Amityville house, you know, the look of the Amityville house. Yeah, I can Um, pick it out of a lineup. Right. And so you can sort of see what I mean where it's like, designed to look like a barn but it's an actual house that you can find it's still existing today i am not going to say the address although it's all over the internet but it's like people fucking live there and i don't know if if we have any listeners in long island but like don't drive out there and bother people like just don't be a dick guys these houses are real houses yeah (laughs) 
Like, like Scotty literally just said, people live there. It's like the Breaking yeah. Bad house. They finally had to put up a fence and be like, please stop <laughs> throwing pizzas on our roofs. Right. The house that they filmed Goonies in, in oh, Oregon, yeah. they had to put, you know, the big tents that they put over your house when they're like fumigating it? Mm-hmm. They were like living under a tent like that for a really long time because people would not leave them alone. Yeah. Like, guys, leave people alone. All of that said, I have driven by the uh, Los Feliz murder mansion multiple times. So yes, but a drive-by, not like <laughs> ringing the doorbell, and me like, can I come in? Like, yeah, and yeah, looking exactly. in the windows and stuff. Right. So yeah. So I'm not going to list the address, but if you want to find it, you can. I mean, it's like pretty much just Google Amityville murder house. And it'll come up. But yeah, so it was a 1927 Dutch colonial style house in Amityville, Long Island. Now here's here's just a little bit of background on the haunting story that everyone knows. Um, okay. Just sort of the cliff notes. In December 1975, George and Kathy Lutz bought the house at the very low price of $80,000. And then they moved in with Kathy's three young children. So I, I guess George and Kathy, they were kind of newlyweds. I think they'd only been married like maybe a year. But okay. she had three kids from a previous relationship. Now, when they moved in, all of the furniture from the previous occupants, who I'm going to talk about here in a couple minutes, mm-hmm. was still there. It, it was kind of included in the price of the house. Now, the Lutzes, they moved in. This was December of 1975. They moved out 28 days later, leaving all of their possessions behind after experiencing what they claimed was a paranormal phenomena. And then this is, if you want to know more, read the book by Jay Anson or go watch the movie. That's the story of the movie. Now, part of the lore is that, oh, the the Lutzes moved into this house and they weren't actually, they didn't even know what had happened here. Um, Mm -hmm. And so they were completely caught off guard and caught by surprise. This was not true. They actually were told by the real estate agents, hey, there was like a horrible murder situation here a year ago. Do you still want the house? That's why it's so cheap. And they were like, yeah, we're cool. We're good. And so they knew what they were getting into. Now, they've never said exactly what happened in their last night in the house, saying that it was, quote, too frightening. But again, you can watch Uh. the movie. I'm not sure how accurate you could say the movie is. And then they were introduced after they moved out. And I'm going to get more into this later. They were introduced, quote unquote, I'm going to talk about Mm -hmm. who introduced them a little later, uh, to an editor at Prentice Hall Publishers. And this editor then introduced them to an author and documentary filmmaker named Jay Anson. They ended up giving Anson over 45 hours of recorded audio tapes, which he then used to write the book, The Amityville Horror, which was published in September 1977. And then, of course, The Amityville Horror was adapted, I think, a year or two later. It was very shortly after that, into Mm -hmm. the movie starring... Margot Kidder and James Brolin. And I do have to say, like, I am fairly skeptical about the veracity of their, their story, mm-hmm. but I fucking love that movie. It's one I don't think of, I've I don't think oh. I've ever seen it. I saw the remake, oh, honestly, ooh. just for just for Ryan Reynolds because he had his shirt off. Yeah. Um, it's not but, good <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> no, the I'll original watch, watch the, the original. The original is a really great film. And in fact, Stephen King talks about it is is a, a great example of a movie that even though it's a horror movie, you know, the supernatural horror movie, it really is about the sort of financial distress of that time. It was like an era of like recession. It was the oh, yeah. Jimmy Carter era, you know, the Malaise era. Mm-hmm. And you get a lot of that interesting subtext in the film but it's, it's a great movie it, it's it's the rest of the series not so much okay. you know, there's a bunch of sequels they're not very good but that original movie is one of my all-time favorites okay however you know do i believe it really happened i'm not sure so the book and the film were massive successes became cultural icons particularly that house everyone recognizes the house with those kind of 
quarter moon windows. Mm-hmm. But then very quickly, both Anson and the Lutzes came under attack for inaccuracies, exaggerations, mm-hmm. and then essentially making up the whole story as a publicity stunt. Ooh. But true or not, the legend persists, and the house was named by Time Magazine as one of the 10 most haunted places in the world. Wow. Now, I don't know how you, like... I don't know how you determine that, but again, this is like Sleepy Hollow, where it's right. like who's who's like what what scale are we using? Yeah, is it the weirdest thing believability scale? I think yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> but anyway, so that so that's the. If you want to know more, you can read more into the haunting stories, but I'm not going to okay. get too much into that. What I do want to talk about is the DeFeo murders. So this is the DeFeo family. Six of them were murdered the year before the Lutzes moved in. So my sources for this, I pulled from a bunch of, and if you Google DeFeo murders, you are going to find so much bullshit on the internet. Okay. And it was kind of like Mothman where it was really hard to like boil it down because there's mm. so many conspiracy theories, so many, actually yeah. this person did it and this person did it. I'm going to touch on some of that, but I'm, okay. I'm going to try and stick as much as I can to kind of more verifiable facts. Okay. So my sources were Wikipedia, of course, and then mm-hmm. an article called The Horrific True Story of Ronald DeFeo Jr. and the Amityville Murders by Aaron Kelly. This was published on allthatsinteresting.com in 2007, mm-hmm. 2017. Okay. And then there's a website called amityvillemurders.com from an author named Rick Osuna. He also wrote a book called The Night the DeFeos Died. Mm. Now, a lot of what it seems like Rick Osuna's deal is, is to, he's, I'm not going to say he's like one of the conspiracy theorists, but he's a bit of a contrarian in terms of who he thinks was ultimately responsible. So Ah, I'm not going to go too deeply into it because I, I had a hard time discerning what is and is not believable in this story. Uh So, you know, look into it for yourself, make your own conclusions. Okay. What we do know is that Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., who is known to his family and friends as Butch, that's I'm, I'm going to call him Butch for okay. the rest of this story. Uh, he was born on September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. He was 23 at the time of the murders, and he was the eldest of five children born to Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise DeFeo. Okay. Uh, his siblings were Don, who was 18, Allison, who was 13, Mark, who was 12, and then Matthew, who was 6. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was known, who his father, was known as Big Big Ronnie, quote-unquote, and he was known to be domineering and abusive. Mm. Um, so here's a quote from AmityvilleMurders.com. It says, Louise's brother, Michael Brigante Jr., would later testify at the DeFeo trial about an incident he witnessed when Butch was two years old. He said, quote, We were all sitting down in the basement watching TV, and I don't know, the boy had done something. All of a sudden, he stood up, the father, and just pushed the boy this way into the wall. The boy banged his head or part of his shoulder or something. Big Ronnie sounds like not a great guy. Yeah. Um, Butch himself was a troubled kid. He was shy. He struggled with a weight problem until he became a teenager when he started abusing drugs and alcohol Mm. and got hooked on methamphetamines. Now, at some point, he had moved out of the house. He was definitely the black sheep of the family. Although it sounds like the entire family was pretty dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And I'll get into some of that as, as I go on. Um, he did work for his father at a, car t- at a car dealership in Brooklyn. The car dealership was owned by his maternal grandfather, Mike Brigante, so his mother's father. Okay. Mike Brigante is going to be kind of important in a little bit, so put a okay. pin in that. So Butch worked for this car dealership with his father, but he was already deeply involved in drugs. He rarely showed up for work, et cetera. And then 
so I saw some conflicting dates on this, but I saw both November 23rd, 1974, and then November 13th. So I'm not sure what the exact date is, mm-hmm. but let's just say November 23rd. At 6.30 p.m. on November 23rd, 1974, Butch went to a nearby pub called Henry's Bar and reported that his parents appeared to have been shot. So earlier in the day, he, he had gone to work earlier in the day at the car dealership, but left around noon that day because he was, quote, bored. What? And then, yeah. He just like fucked off from his job because he was bored and then went to this bar, Henry's, (laughs) and just sat there for hours complaining about his family, repeatedly trying to call his parents' house, not getting through, being like, what the fuck? They won't answer the phone, blah, 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 blah. So eventually he got up, left the bar, went over to their house, which apparently was very close to the bar. I think it was walking distance. Mm -hmm. And then rushed back and said, my parents are shot. My parents are shot. So he gathered up several people from the bar. They all went back to the house where they found his parents in bed, dead. And somebody, someone in the group called the police. The police arrived and searched the house, and uh, they discovered that the entire family had been murdered. They'd been killed with a 35 caliber rifle, all shot, all lying face down in their bed. Big Ronnie, his wife, and then all the younger children. Mm-hmm. Ronald Sr. and Louise, his wife, had been shot twice, and then all of the children were shot once. So here's a couple weird things that have kind of led to some of the conspiracy theories. One yeah. is that there were no signs of forced entry or struggle. Okay. Um, which suggested that the entire family must have slept through the murders. Now, this has been contradicted. I saw this. I don't remember exactly where I saw this in one of the articles, but it said that, you know, many people have claimed that, well, clearly the entire family was killed in their sleep, but there is actual physical, physical evidence that suggests that Louise and daughter Allison at least were awake at the time they were killed. Now, later at the police station, Butch suggested that the family must have been killed by a mafia hitman named Louis Fellini. Okay. I could not find any info on this Louis Fellini outside of, like, if you Google Louis Fellini, it just comes up to articles about the DeFeo murders. Okay. So I don't know if he was an actual hitman, if he was just a name that Butch kind of pulled out of the air. Mm-hmm. But they, I did read several places that the cops were able to track down this Louis Fellini, and he had an airtight alibi. Okay. But there, I'm, I'm going to get a little bit more into it, but there are mafia connections with this family. So it wasn't entirely implausible. Okay. But they, dis, they were able to disprove that it was this Louis Fellini. And then immediately Butch's stories became, started to become inconsistent. So the cops decided to keep pushing him. They mm-hmm. interrogated him. And within about a day, he had confessed to killing his family. Okay. And here's the quote. It said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. Um, wow. He did go on to try to put forward an insanity or insanity defense. Mm-hmm. But this kind of didn't hold water because in his interrogation, he admitted to police that he bathed after the killings. And then he spent the rest of the night disposing of evidence, like the rifle, the cartridges, all of his bloody clothes, and then going to work the next day to, to establish an alibi. So this kind of would contradict the insanity defense because it showed he had a certain awareness that what he had done was a crime. He was trying to cover his tracks. So he was put on trial. He mounted an affirmative defense of insanity and claimed that in his mind he was acting in self-defense because he heard voices in his head telling him that his family was all plotting against him. Uh Yeah. The defense put up a psychiatrist, a guy named Daniel Schwartz, as a witness, and, and Schwartz validated those claims he said that the defeo's claims of having hallucinations were credible but then the prosecution put up another psychiatrist a guy named harold zolan who actually claimed that 
rather than being mentally ill, Butch had antisocial personality disorder. And it's important to point out that there is a distinction between a personality disorder and a mental illness. Mm. So a mental illness indicates some sort of altered thinking, altered connection to reality Okay. in some way. A personality disorder is just, you know, it's a disorder in how you behave, but it's not necessarily a disorder in how you perceive the world. Okay. So if you can have antisocial personality disorder, which is essentially sociopathy or psychopathy Mm -hmm. or or extreme narcissism, essentially, Mm -hmm. without being insane, you know, without, you know, you can be perfectly lucid and still have this personality disorder. So this would not fall under the insanity defense. Okay. And then this psychiatrist for the prosecution also argued that he was a habitual user of heroin and LSD and that he was aware that the actions he was committing at the time of the murder were wrong, as evidenced by the fact that he tried to cover his tracks. Right. So he ended up being convicted. He was convicted of six counts of second-degree murder and was given six sentences of 25 years to life. And he is still in prison to this day. He's currently 69 years old, and he's housed at the Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. And at this point, all of his appeals for clemency have been denied. So. So that's, that's the basics of the story of the DeFeo family murders. Now let's okay. get into some of the weird shit. Yes, please. <laughs> One of the things people have questioned mm-hmm. is how the family slept through the murders. You would yeah. think, you know, the, the police were able to determine, I guess they must have found the rifle. I couldn't find much information on that. Mm-hmm. But they were able to determine that there, no silencer had been attached to it and it was a you know 35 caliber rifle rifle this is going to be really loud yeah um how you know after the first shot you would think everyone else would wake up and try to get out but they're all found dead lying face down in their bed apparently asleep butch apparently did tell police during one of his interrogations that he had drugged his family okay but they did tox screens and there was no evidence of any intoxicants in their body. So this is still a big mystery. It's possible he drugged them and it just didn't show up on the toxicology screens. Right. But it's strange. Also strange is the fact that not only did the family apparently sleep through this, but so did all of the neighbors. And, yeah. and I've like Google mapped it to find the house. And you can tell it's like, it's set back from the road, but there's other houses around. It's not like in some rural area where nobody is. It's, it's right. on the street in a neighborhood. Right. Um, no neighbors heard the gunshots. The only reported like sound disturbance was people heard the DeFeo family dog named Shaggy was barking. That's the only thing people noticed. They did not hear any gunshots. And what time did the murders take place? They think early in the morning, the day before he went and to work and was like, I'm bored. I got to go. Yeah. So it could have been, and I couldn't find an exact time. I think because they don't know the exact time, Right. but probably midnight or later kind of thing. And I think okay. I think the sound the reports of the dog barking. I think I read somewhere that people were saying it was like two thirty in the morning. So who knows what that means? Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, DeFeo was the black sheep of the family, and he reported. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, not sorry. I'm just trying to get this timeline right in my mind. Mm-hmm. So he kills his family in the middle of the night, yeah. shoots them, goes to work the next day, Gets fucks bored. off work because he's bored goes to a bar, leaves the bar, heads home. Mm-hmm. And what time does he come out being like, my family's been shot? 6.30 p.m. So, okay. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, because his big plan was to be like, the family was in bed and completely asleep at 6.30 p.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... And then was like, they won't notice that this blood isn't fresh. They won't mm-hmm. notice... Okay, but I, but I have yeah. all, like, those are all, the, those are the details. Those right? are the details that I could do. Okay. So going back to my story from the last episode of the Dumbo okay. murder. Um, <laughs> yes. Like, one thing I think you discover when you're a true crime fan is that, you know, there are rarely, like, perfect murders. Yeah. You know, committed by evil geniuses, like, you know, Professor Moriarty. Usually, yes. these people are pretty fucking stupid. And... Like everything you said right there is true because I think ultimately now whether he was stupid, whether he was hopped up on drugs, right, right, okay, what I was forgot about on, the drugs, correct? Um, it was not a um, Swiss watch of a plan. Let's just say, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Okay. So, like I said, DeFeo was the black sheep of the family. He had a very bad relationship with his father. As I said, it sounds like Big Ronnie was pretty abusive. It sounds like he was abusive to all of the kids. Then everything I read about the mother said she was just a very fade into the background person. But he's never given any specific indication for the motive of the murders. And in fact, he has changed his story multiple times. Mm. Um, And his stories get more and more far-fetched. And I'll get to that in just a second. However, he did apparently in one of his early interrogations mention something about his father having a life insurance policy to the police, basically asking, so do you guys know how I would claim this life insurance policy? Um, uh, Again, not a brain trust. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. So of course this was used by the prosecution as evidence that his motive was ultimately financial. He was trying to collect on his parents' life insurance and probably killed the siblings because they were witnesses is the that's the most like straightforward theory right what happened but like i said his statements have been very inconsistent from the start he's told many 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 stories and i'm gonna give a little hint of a trigger warning here okay thank you if you didn't need it already okay <laughs> we're not <laughs> doing it for the familiar side or whatever yeah but. no this gets a little bit darker so okay. there are theories and this is something that I have, I was not able to find anything other than like stuff on wild conspiracy websites. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is the plot to Amityville Horror 2, The Possession, quote unquote. Ooh, okay. Which, which essentially is a prequel to the Amityville Horror and tells the story of the DeFeo murders. Oh, okay. Uh, there are, and it's, it's a real like cheeseball ripoff of The Exorcist to be Mm -hmm. honest. Okay. But it it tells the Ronald DeFeo, Butch DeFeo story. There have been lots of rumors, theories, allegations that DeFeo, that Butch DeFeo was actually having a sexual relationship with his sister, Dawn, who was 18. I almost like hesitate to even say that. The only reason I feel like I can say it is because it's in the Amityville Horror 2 movie. So this is not like secret information. I find very little that's credible about that and like i said everywhere i read something that said well clearly don was involved because they were having an affair we're on like old geocities websites cached from the 90s they were clearly just like tinfoil hat people coming up with so like take that for what it is and put it where it belongs is what i would say (laughs) which is in the garbage yeah in the garbage or up butch defeo's ass Um, okay but anyway so among his claims he said that Don, the 18-year-old sister, 
Mm-hmm. So the second oldest in the family killed her father, which then led to his mother distraught, grief stricken, going around and murdering all the siblings. And then okay. it's not clear then who killed the mother. Right. The, this this makes me think of the, the that fucking asshole in Colorado. What's his name? Chris Watts. Oh. Trying to claim that, oh, I only killed her because she killed the kids, which is like, right. fuck you. Yeah. So that's what I think of this story. I, I don't okay. buy that Don killed the father and then he claimed that he took the blame butch claimed that he took the blame only because he was afraid that his maternal grandfather and maternal uncle mike brigante senior and junior i think Mm -hmm. would have him killed if he told the true story now here's the thing about the brigantes and the defeo family and this i think is like it was hard to really like determine how accurate this is but i found this Mm -hmm. in multiple sources i've heard this many times over the years i think it's essentially true it's certainly true the defeos but these were mafia families Uh, the brigantes uh are supposed to have worked had ties to carlo gambino of the gambino crime family which is one of the major Mm -hmm. five families in -hmm. new york and then I think, and I think that is like still kind of like questionable. No one really knows what their ties were. Right. What is not questionable is that um, his, like his great uncle, essentially his grandfather's brother, Rocky DeFeo's brother was a guy named Pete DeFeo. And he was a soldier and then later Capo regime in the Gen- Genovese crime family. Okay. So the mafia ties are pretty like clear. Right. And so Butch of course is claiming, well, if I had said what really happened, which is that, you know, essentially my mother killed all of her children. You know, her father, my grandfather, and her brother, my uncle, would have had me whacked, essentially. So this is his story. And again, Butch and his father both worked at a car dealership that was owned by his grandfather, uh, Mike Brigante. And the car dealership was sort of theorized to have essentially been like a front, like a right. front. Now, again, all of this is very speculative. Don't come at okay. me. Like, I can't prove any of this. <laughs> but these are the stories okay. that are out there. So, like, Gambino's, like, I'm not calling you out. Like, <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. I was thinking, like, you know, just people on the internet. But mafia folks. Yeah, we don't need the mafia um, folks coming out. And I don't have anything to do with the story. I'm just a listener. So, really, please, yeah. if you're going to go after somebody, go after Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> so, all correspondence <laughs> should be sent to Amelia Puerto. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, these are the rumors. Let's let's just call them rumors. Okay. Some verifiable, some not so much. This story that Don had killed her father and then Louise, the mother, had gone on a grief-stricken rampage and killed all the others, that fell apart. And then later, while he was trying to have his conviction vacated, I think this was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Butch then claimed that his mother called and told him to come break up a fight between his father and his sister, Don. He arrived and found Don with an unknown person who fled before Butch could get into the house in the midst of murdering the family. And then he said he wrestled with her over the gun, which was how she was shot. So now he's saying that Don did it. Don killed everybody. Okay. With some rando. Okay. Where did he get this call? Where was he when he got this call? He, so... He claims, this is interesting, he claimed that he was married. And everyone was like, since when? He was like, oh yeah, no, I was totally married back then. No evidence that he was married. But he claimed that he was married to this woman named Geraldine Gates. And I, I don't know if that's her maiden name or if this was like a later married name, but this is the name I found on the internet. She's, she's 
variously referred to as Geraldine Gates or Geraldine DeFeo. He claimed that he was married to this Geraldine, got the phone call wherever he was living with her, and then went with his brother-in-law, Geraldine's brother, to the house. Uh, someone named Richard Romando. And he was like, well, I was with, what the f- I was oh with Richard during the murders. And so the DA was like, again, this is in the 90s. They were like, cool, cool, cool. A, why, ne- why did this never come up in the last 15 years? Right. Uh, 15 plus years. B, uh, where is this Richard Romando? Because we maybe would like to talk to him. And, and Butch was like, I mean, I don't know where Richard is. And so then they contacted Geraldine, who does exist. And she was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, me and, uh, uh, me and Butch were married. We were, we were in love. Um, he was, you know, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, he went with my brother. And they were like, okay, well, where's your brother? And she's like, I don't know. What? Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so here's a quote from, this is from that AmityvilleMurders.com. This is Geraldine talking. She says, in 1974, I was not only the wife of Ronald Joseph Butch DeFeo Jr., but also the mother of his child. Bird? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Record scratch. Bird? <laughs> I knew his family and loved them as my own. Part of my life ended when the DeFeos were murdered and my husband was accused of committing this unspeakable crime. After the DeFeo murders, I've had to remain silent and hidden, partly out of fear for my children and partly out of respect for those who went to such great lengths to make sure I was not unjustly implicated in the crime. The ones closest to the DeFeos suffered greatly from the tragic murders of their loved ones and from the ridicule following their cruel hoax. Until July 2000, nothing could be said or done about all the lies told about Butch DeFeo, his family in their house. Rich, powerful family members made sure of that. So she's nodding at the mafia thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that they're dead and my children are grown, it is time to set the record straight. And this is from, I think, an interview in like 2002. Okay. So she's claiming she's married. She's claiming he was with her brother that night, blah, blah, blah. They poked into this story a little bit and they discovered that she didn't actually marry Butch until 1989 when he had been in prison for X number of years. Yeah. And she finally admitted, she was like, oh yeah, and by the way, she admitted under oath in 1992. Yeah, my, that whole thing about my brother, yeah, I don't have a brother. He doesn't exist. So again, <laughs> not, not a switch watch of a plan here. No. Okay, so do we think, was this the kind of thing where, like, like did they have an actual relationship, but then they got married in 1989? So, so, or was she, like, a prison bride, you know what I mean? So it sounds like they did know each other okay. back in the 70s and were probably involved. It also sounds like she was married to somebody else at the time. So she might have been a girlfriend or something. And then over the years, just the story got concocted. Mm-hmm. Um. I mean, no shade to Geraldine DeFeo or Gates or whatever the hell your name is. Like, I don't know you. (laughs) I don't know your life story. Um, I'm just going to say from what I've read, I call bullshit on a lot of what you say. I call bullshit on you. (laughs) Yeah. As a human. (laughs) I mean, I think it's true. She had a relationship with him, but it sounds like she was trying to alibi him up like 15 years too late with a fake brother that they'd made up out of whole cloth. Guys, you cannot make up a fake sibling. I mean... This isn't like, you know, 1794, where you can be like, oh, I had a brother who's, <laughs> you know, gone west yeah. to look for gold. Like, <laughs> you, I mean, this shit is easily verifiable. Right, like, even in the, like, 90s or whenever, they were trying to make this shit up. It's like, yeah, let's look up some social security numbers and see if this person is out there. Yeah. Nope. Super not. Super Ugh. not. 
No brother. Okay. Um, can I just interject yeah. with this real fast? I get, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before in terms of like, you know, like how we would murder somebody that I do have to say <laughs> that none of this is done. None of this is, is, uh, you know, at least me advocating for, for, for the murder of people, but rather it's my like problem solving brain yeah. that is like, how did you not see that as a mass fucking hole in the plot to do this? That nobody yeah. would be like, you don't have a brother. You like these bodies are like, have been dead for 18 hours. Like yeah. all of that stuff is just like, like you didn't, you didn't, you didn't think this through, and now you've done a bad job at this. Yeah. I am not advocating for doing a good job at murder. <laughs> yeah, we should clarify that. But I, I, I am, will say, I, I, like, but I, I struggle with anybody doing anything badly. Yeah, no, so. I'm, I'm with you. Like, yes, murder's bad, murder's wrong, blah blah. No, blah, murder's blah. bad. Whatever, blah, blah, we all agree. <laughs> but I, I do get almost more irritated when the murder plot is just this and that like it's it's like not only did you murder people but like you weren't even good at it right like you know this goes you know one of my other best friends has this thing of like you got to bring something to the table right and if you're not like if you're not going to be funny then you've got to be good looking and if you're not going to be good looking (laughs) then you've got to be sweet and if you're not going to be sweet then you need to like you know which is yeah you got to bring something to the table all of these are very you know those maybe aren't the best examples but you have to bring something to the table and if you're going to be a shit stain of a human being who wants to take other human beings lives then you at least need to be smart and organized yeah. and it like the, the, that's the that's the criteria yeah you know to, again to let's away, clarify get, yes. we're talking more theoretically 100 percent <laughs> theoretically and this is again to like tick the you know the sort of um my own idiosyncrasies and the things that like push my buttons mm-hmm. but this kind of like again this kind of sloppiness this kind of disorderly conduct i cannot abide well you know i think it's almost like the part of me that's a teacher you know Mm, because mm -hmm. i get annoyed by like shitty murder plots the same way Mm -hmm. i get annoyed when like a student turns in work where i'm like dude you didn't even spell check it right like it's like fucking try just put a little bit of effort into it all that said murder's wrong we all agree murder's wrong and we are also hot take don't murder (laughs) (laughs) guys you heard it here first on the weirdest thing podcast, don't murder and fuck um, Nazis. And fuck Nazis. This is this episode's full of hot, chock full of hot takes. Yeah, we are also we should acknowledge we are also dealing with somebody who is at minimum dealing with addiction issues, and so I don't want to mm-hmm. completely. That's true. Well, that. and and I think I think. Uh, you know, it's hard for me. You know, it does sound like the abuse in the family, the dysfunction in the family was real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to discount that. Um, right. I do think Butch DeFeo was a victim of abuse. Mm-hmm. I do think he was someone who dealt with drug addiction. However, like you can't get past the fact that he rifle murdered not only his abusive father, mm-hmm. but also his mother mm-hmm. and all of his siblings. So it's yeah. like, you know, I give a little... I don't want to say like I can have like a kernel of empathy for him mm-hmm. because of what he went through, but it kind of stops like the moment he pulled that trigger. Right. And for like, I can have, I can have the, the kernel of empathy for the, the events of that specific night, but unless homeboy is still addicted to drugs mm-hmm. however many well, years later in the prison system which i mean is I mean, honestly been... not unlikely but you know i mean like 
if he had come in and he'd been like, hey, this is what was going on. I was super messed up. I 100% killed my family. There was nobody else. There was well, no second gunman. Like, never been me. any taking of responsibility. He's yeah. you know, 45 years plus in prison at yeah. this point. No, fuck that. And he's still saying his sister did it. His mother did it. The 13-year-old kid did it. Yeah. And this is yeah. like a very standard feature of people with antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, is they right, never take responsibility and they always lie. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the guys, like, I think, you know, I'm not a psychi- psychiatrist, obviously. I'm just some dude with a Disclaimer. Podcast. Disclaimer. <laughs> um, but he seems like a classic sociopath to me. It's so, it's so interesting, too, because, you know, there are people that, you know, you making the distinction between, like, mental illness and personality disorders. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's, it's... I'm glad that you did that because I think a lot of times people can be like, oh, well, this person has like, this person has issues. And we've talked about how I, I, I bristle at people being like, oh oh, yeah, this person was obviously not mentally well. And I'm like, I think that's a very dangerous connection Mm -hmm. to start making of people who like equating people who do bad things with people who are struggling with mental illness because they're not the same thing. I mean, as someone who has struggled with mental illness, specifically depression. Right. You know, I've never murdered a bunch of people, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. I think it is important to make it clear that like, and, and frankly, I think it's important to make it clear that like not everyone with a personality disorder does these things. You know, there are all yes. sorts of different personality disorders. Even people with narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, they're not all murderers. Right. But I but I think there's frequently this thing of like, oh, we need to, you know, cut this person some slack because they're struggling with stuff. And I'm like, that person isn't struggling. That's that person being a narcissist a raging malignant narcissist is not them struggling with this stuff. They're doing these things because they don't care about anybody else yeah yeah whatever there's not like no amount of compassion or empathy is going to make them see the light and the error of their ways right because they're just not wired that way yeah and that's particularly true when you get into the antisocial personality disorder stuff Mm -hmm. but i think it's you know no matter what he was struggling with whether it's addiction whether whether there was mental illness you know i can't say for sure that there wasn't whether you know there's a personality disorder I don't think it lets him off the hook for what he did. And I think no. that's important to say. Yeah. But so anyway, yeah. So yeah. he's he's just made up a bunch of stories. And then in another series of 2002 interviews with this Rick Osuna, who's the person who I believe runs this AmityvilleMurders.com website, mm-hmm. who I said is kind of seems like a bit of a contrarian. Butch claimed that he committed the murders with Don and two of his friends because his, he thought his parents were plotting to kill him. And then after their parents were dead, Butch claimed that Don killed the other children to eliminate the witnesses. And enraged by her actions, he killed her in retaliation. So again, like, you know, okay, he's sort of saying, yeah, I killed my parents with my sister, but because I thought they were plotting against me. And then, but so aggrieved by her evil actions, I killed her. You know, so it's like he's still not taking any responsibility. Well, and it's always, it's like, you know, going along with the whole thing about Chris Watts is like, I actually did this very noble thing Mm -hmm. of murdering this person because they had done this thing that was clearly wrong. Yeah. And it's like. Yeah. So really, I'm the hero of this. Really? I read this fascinating thing about how narcissists are thriving during the pandemic. 
<laughs> like, I'm sorry. Let me let me restate that. Essential workers who are narcissists oh, are thriving during the pandemic because they're like, I'm so fucking important. Like, and like <laughs> they're they're going nuts posting on social media and all of this stuff. Interesting. I just thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. That makes sense. I wouldn't have thought of that. Okay, so back to some of the crazy theories around these murders. So going back to the Amityville Horror 2, The Possession, Mm -hmm. it's been widely theorized, and this comes up, I think, in the the George and Kathy Lutz story, that they believe the house itself was evil, and that it wasn't haunted, but actually infested by a demon. Okay. And so the theory is that Butch DeFeo was actually possessed mm. at the time of the murders, which is what, like I said, that's the plot of the sequel to the Amityville Horror. Okay. There's also a lot of theories that it was a mafia hit because of all the mafia ties, rumored, alleged mafia mm-hmm. ties to the family. But here's where I, and I didn't see this anywhere, but this is just my uh, two cents on this. Okay. You know anything about La Cosa Nostra? You know, mm-hmm. the, the sort of the classic mafia. One thing they did not do was murder families. Oh. Code of honor, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when you get into like some of the various drug cartels, some of the other organized crime organizations, you know, that's a different story. But when you're talking about La Cosa Nostra, mm-hmm. they don't murder families. So the fact that the entire family was murdered, just it doesn't feel like a mafia hit to me. So I find that fairly implausible. Now, here's just a weird thing I found that I had never heard before. And I'm just going to read this. This is from AmityvilleMurders.com website. They were talking about, supposedly there was a seventh body that was What? Covered. Yeah. Okay. So here's what they say. They said, during the final stages of researching the night that DeFeos died in, in the Amityville house, author Rick Osuna discovered a mysterious and intriguing image embedded in the actual negative strips of the DeFeo crime scene photographs. After receiving the reprint, Osuna was amazed that the photo seemed to show what would later be called the, quote, seventh body. Osuna had numerous theories about the image, including it was everything from a repositioned uh, DeFeo, I'm not sure which DeFeo he's talking about, to a commingling of crime scene evidence from another case. Mm, Uh, Questions around the mysterious seventh body were left unanswered for several years. That was until Ryan Katzenbach undertook the extensive research for his docudrama Shattered Hopes. And then, so basically when they were doing this docudrama, they discovered that actually it was a crime scene photo from another crime scene that happened to have gotten mixed in. There was an 11-year-old girl named Karen Marie de Janeiro who was murdered. And the photos were essentially filed together and the thing is karen de janeiro looked quite a bit like allison defeo so people were like is this allison defeo like a different angle of her but no it's a totally different person now back to the i guess before i get to this i do want to read so this is from a website i'm not going to tell you the website because it's bullshit okay (laughs) it's it's one of those like old geo cities like conspiracy oh, websites yeah, yeah, i'm yeah. just gonna read this just so you, you can get a sense of how crazy some of the conspiracy theories go okay so this is not me these the views expressed do not reflect the views of the weirdest thing <laughs> podcast <laughs> so the title of the article is the amityville horror conspirators the father of ronald defeo senior big ronnie is rocky defeo and the father of louise defeo is mike brigante senior 
Both Rocco DeFeo and Mike Brigante Sr. were big-time mobsters. Powerful people in Amityville wanted the DeFeos gone, but needed a method to eliminate them without inviting mob retaliation. The neighbors of the DeFeos, enduring years of threats and living in fear of a mob hit, also wished for the DeFeo's demise, but were afraid of the DeFeo's mob connections. It was common knowledge in Amityville that Luis DeFeo's father, Mike Brigante Sr., had ties to Carlo Gambino, a Sicilian mobster that controlled the Gambino crime family. Big Ronnie and his oldest son, Butch, were threatening their neighbors by telling them they had powerful connections with organized crime and would bring in the mob to murder the neighbors and their entire families. This could no longer be tolerated by the neighbors. After Butch was arrested for the theft of a boat motor, <laughs> uh, Big Ronnie went down to, I don't know why that just tickles me for some reason. Uh, yeah. Big Ronnie went down to the police station and began threatening the police, warning them of the DeFeo family's mob connections. In another incident, after Butch's friend was arrested by police on drug charges, Butch threatened to murder the arresting police officer and the police officer's daughter. This was the catalyst for bringing in outside help to deal with the DeFeo menace. Powerful people in Amityville began to conspire and plot to eliminate the DeFeos. The government mafia was contacted. The government mafia is a secret police, covert, a secret police force covertly set up by the United States government to deal with the growing influence of organized crime in America. The government mafia is equipped with classified surveillance technology that can electronically see and hear through walls. So if you haven't done it already, now's the time to put on your tinfoil hats. <laughs> um, <laughs> just, just, uh, yep. So the government mafia is also equipped with military type directed energy weapons that can harass, incapacitate, or murder people through walls, spelled T-H-R-U, by the way. Without creating physical evidence of their use. The government mafia places members of organized crime under covert surveillance and finds ways to bring them down. The government mafia operates above the law and their existence is denied by the government. As I'm reading this, I'm like, oh shit, this is like deep state QAnon shit. Right. Uh, What if our broadcast just immediately just turned off? Okay. <laughs> and it was just like a dead air signal for like somehow yeah. <laughs> like somehow like, the podcast still gets uploaded but <laughs> <laughs> but scotty and amelia were never seen again um, okay but we're not even done yet so the government mafia was called in to deal with the defeos in late 1973 a pact between the powerful people in amityville and the defeos direct neighbors was formed to allow the government mafia to murder the defeo family Classified military lethal directed energy weapons were used to murder the DeFeos through the walls of their home while they slept on November 13th, 1974. So, um, I mean, they were killed with a rifle, 35 caliber rifle, not an energy weapon, just a fact check. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. One by one. Press press pause. (laughs) <laughs> because this person is under the impression that some type of energy force, like laser beam, was used to kill mm-hmm. the people from outside of the home. Sure. Was able to murder the DeFeo family, but not leave like holes in the walls or anything. No, but somehow left 35 caliber rifle bullets. I mean, obviously that was planted post-murder. Planted by the government mafia, exactly. Right, by the government mafia <laughs> as part of an elaborate cover-up, but yeah. was able to like pew, pew, laser beams. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. All yeah. right, I'm on board. Yeah. I'm in. I'm, yeah, I'm in. You're in. Like, just, uh-huh. just 
just release into it as you like to say <laughs> uh one by one six members of the defeo family members were put into cardiac arrest in less than a minute the defeos went to sleep that night and simply never again awoke except Bad they were there. shot in the head yeah and so how does it end and never how did it end and never, never woke again up? awoke mm. yeah i would like red pin that if i was editing <laughs> Um, the lethal directed energy weapons were fired at the DeFeos from inside a direct neighboring house. The weapons fire a beam of electricity into the chest area of the targeted person to cause instant death. The targeted person. How is it targeted? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll, I'm sorry. I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. No, I mean, no, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm 100% with you on that. The targeted person is targeted through the walls of both houses by classified technology that can electronically see and target people through the wall. So there's your answer right there. No physical damage occurs to both houses and no physical marks will be left on the bodies of the targeted people. So there's no way to prove these weapons were used against the DeFeos. Since the weapons are fired from inside a neighboring house, no visual evidence of the weapons is possible from outside the house. The beam of electricity is invisible to the human eye and completely silent. It's basically instant death when fired into the targeted person's chest. Minutes after the murders, a strike team entered the DeFeo residence and rearranged the six lifeless bodies of the DeFeos. The DeFeos were placed on, placed on their stomachs with their arms extended above their heads and then shot with butcher's rifle. So I guess that's what they're... So, like, let's just, like, go back to what you talked about in your Denver airport story mm-hmm. about confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's my take on what I think happened. Okay, hit me. I think Butch DeFeo murdered his family. I think for whatever reason, I think it's pretty straightforward. Dude had problems. Dude was pissed off at his dad. Yeah. Dude went and murdered his family. Dude made up a bunch of stories after the fact. Yeah. Like, I think it's there you go. Now, whether the house is haunted or not, I remain fairly uh, agnostic on, probably more skeptical than not. Even though, like, I will say, I hung on to the Amityville horror for so long wanting to believe this story. I read the book when I was a kid. It blew my fucking mind. And then just the more you poke into the Lutz's story, the more threads you pull, the less things seem to kind of add up. Now, one weird thing, and this is is part of the plot of the Amityville Horror of the movie, is that Mm -hmm. George Lutz, I'll, I'll post a picture on social media. George Lutz, if you put a picture of George Lutz next to a picture of Butch DeFeo, they could be mm-hmm. brothers. Ooh, like, they're really? shockingly similar looking. So that has been the source of all sorts of other theories that like, okay. you know, George Lutz was called. There's some sort of connection between him and uh, Butch DeFeo, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Now here's just a little, there's just a little food for thought on whether you believe the Amityville house is haunted. Okay. Um, so apparently Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, so Butch DeFeo's attorney, William Weber. Mm-hmm. This is a quote, by the way, from all that's in, the All That's Interesting.com article. So Butch DeFeo's attorney, William Weber, was more involved in the lore than you may expect. He claims that George and Kathy Lutz, the home's next occupants for only 28 days, approached him, so apparently, I guess, after the trial, mm-hmm. about an idea for a book and said, and then... William Weber said, we created this story over many bottles of wine. It is a hoax. Um, He ended up trying to sue them because he claims they came up with this story over many bottles of wine and they were, and he was going to hook them up with a publisher. I think he might've even like been the one to introduce them 
to that publisher who then introduced them to Jay Anson. Mm -hmm. Um, But they ended up going to a different publisher and then cut him out of the proceeds. So he sued them for $60 million. Um, Ultimately settled out of court for about 17,000. So that's, yeah. (laughs) He's like, look, just reimburse me for the wine. Basically. I think that's what happened. (laughs) (laughs) but look i bought the nice cheese and the crackers and i'd like to be reimbursed for the 17 bottles of wine (sighs) yeah yeah and the thing is when you look at when you look at the the lutz story Mm -hmm. which like i said i don't want to go too deeply into because it's it's like Mm -hmm. the main story people talk about but i mean there's just a lot of it really depends on who you're listening to it's really hard to determine who to believe in that story yeah i think it's pretty clear that the book the amityville horror there's a lot of stuff in that book that has been contradicted but then the lutz children have come out over the years and said no like shit was happening in the house you know the lutzes have always maintained that no, the house was haunted. Um, so the only person who says that it was a hoax was the lawyer. So the well, I think he's the only person who had a direct connection who claimed that it was okay, a hoax. Okay. And then, uh-huh. and to be fair, you got to question this lawyer. Like, is he making shit up? You know, was he? Right. Issuing, you know, who knows? So is that's he why part I say, of the like, government mafia? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Okay. But I, I guess where I fall on the haunting is that I. And probably 55% skeptical and 45% open to it. So if we're going to okay. go with our weirdest thing believability scale, like if we're saying okay. Chupacabra is 1.5, mm-hmm. Mongolian Deathworm is 3, Mothman is 6, mm-hmm. I'm going to put Amityville Horror like at about a 4, 4.5. Okay. Okay. All right. So that okay. is the true story of the Amityville Horror Murders. I mean, big question still remains. How did the other family members sleep through the initial? Yeah, that is, that's the weirdest part that like that and the neighbors not hearing anything. Um, Yeah, that's weird. Those are the two things that like no one has really, I've not read a plausible explanation beyond that the family was drugged, but then you got to go, but they said they didn't find any evidence of that in the body, in the autopsy. So who knows? I mean, I guess I would say it's most likely that the family was drugged, but I have no idea why the neighbors didn't hear it. Because it was six, right? Six shots? Uh, no. Let's no. See. Six people killed, but it would have been... It would eight? Eight four shots, right? shots the got plus two? four. Yeah, so eight shots. I'm trying to do math here. Um, so <laughs> Again, eight. four plus one plus two plus one plus one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, eight <laughs> shots. You're right. Eight shots. You would think some... And, and like 35 caliber rifle without a silencer is not a dainty weapon. Yeah. You would think someone would have heard it, but no one did. They that did is, hear the dog That is barking, weird. Though. That is weird. That is weird. I'm not um, going to lie. That's weird. Now, if you want to know more about the uh, Amityville Horror story, there's, like I said, you can just Google it. There's so much stuff out there. But even if you just like the story, if you have never seen the Amityville Horror, the movie, just taking it as a movie, you know, don't take it as a documentary. It's fucking excellent. So, okay. Yeah interesting so that is Uh, the story all right that's the story that's our story and we're sticking to it (laughs) and this was episode either eight or nine i don't remember (laughs) (laughs) like this was okay this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna say this was episode nine of the weirdest thing and you can just record it and insert it right there (laughs) the robot voice nine (laughs) (laughs) um Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review mm-hmm. us. Uh, mm-hmm. You can track us down on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, just look mm-hmm. for the Weirdest Thing Podcast. 
And mm-hmm. our Gmail, which I'm like 99% sure is accurate, is weirdestthingpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of people who've told me that they can't rate and review on the listening apps uh, mm. that they use for podcasts. We totally understand that. If you want to give us some love, maybe you could share our podcast with other people. Yeah. Maybe you could post about us on social media exactly. um, and do that. Because I swear to God, the more listeners we get, the closer we get to that uh, weirdest thing, believability scale t-shirt. Yeah, we're already we're already talking about it, but we need we need some funds to make this happen. <laughs> we need some fundage. <laughs> so, so help us out. Share us on uh, social media. Yep, and until tell your then, friends, tell your family, tell them. Yeah, tell everybody, and until then, stay weird, everybody. All right, bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true, and that's the weirdest thing.